it's not precise. The great thing about editing is that you can delete, try again, do it all over again, throw it out, take one thing from the other. It's like, there's a different way to do my job. Like there's a more serious way, but it's not me, you know? And I think that's the most important thing is to just like, do you. Welcome to Wider Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of Canada in Ontario. In this episode of Wider Lens, we sit down with DGC Ontario picture editor Matt Hannon. Matt's career has spanned from indie art house films like Swiss Army Man and Enemy to cerebral horror like Possessor and It Comes at Night. His latest feature is director Noah Baumbach's 80s set black comedy White Noise, streaming on Netflix December 30th. Hailing from Winnipeg, Matt came up through the ranks collaborating with iconic Winnipeg filmmaker Guy Madden. Since then, he's worked with the likes of Denis Villeneuve, The Daniels, and Brandon Cronenberg. It's usually there in the script, but sometimes you have to look a little deeper for how to get the script onto the screen, because it might take a little bit of an invention. Join us as we explore how editors' intuition can complement a director's tone and style, why Matt vibrates towards these distinctive voices, and how he's built an international career as a result of his creative chemistry with some of the most interesting directors working today. I think a lot of people know about the long history of artistry in film that's come out of Winnipeg, which is where you came from. But there is a very strong and important part of our heritage of indie filmmaking that, and distinctive voices that have had quite a strong presence around the world that have come out of Winnipeg. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I definitely didn't know that when I was growing up there. Obviously, it's Guy Madden. That's the sort of the big thing. But when I started going to film school, there was this guy, Sean Garrity, who was sort of like the hot filmmaker in in Winnipeg at the time. And he was a real mentor for me. I started as an actor or an aspiring actor, a never successful one. And I met Sean because he cast me in a film. My first year of film school, I went to go see his movie Inertia which was a really popular movie. And Sean's movies were very much rooted in like an improv uh, theater world. And that was something that I was doing at the time. And so I was really interested in that. And Guy's stuff was really rooted in this sort of impressionistic, wild Soviet cinema style. And, and then at the time, there was a guy named Gary Yates who made a movie called Seven Times Lucky. And Steve Cousins shot that. That was sort of like one of his earlier features. There was always a lot going on in Winnipeg. There was always movies shooting there. And the local filmmakers were really tightly wound. We all worked on each other's stuff. And when I started film school, I also joined the Winnipeg Film Group, which was sort of Guy Madden's home and home to a lot of the experimental filmmakers and, and a lot of really amazing people. And there was these two bodies, Winnipeg Film Group and um, Ace Art. And then there was like a video collective that I can't remember the name of that was part of it. And in college or university, I just showed up and I was like, hi, I'd like to learn how to edit video. Do you have video editing facilities? You know, and they're like, well, yeah, we do. And that's sort of the amazing thing about being from a small place like Winnipeg that has 
a real local scene. You know, it's not like anyone was showing up and being like, oh, like I'm going to Hollywood in Winnipeg. It's like, you know, that was Toronto for Canadian movies and Vancouver for American movies. But for me, that, that wasn't within reach. And so, and I think that's what Winnipeg is really. There's plenty of people who did come there to work on these movies. And so we all kind of taught each other how to do it. And there was a lot of generosity. So, you know, working on Guy's movie as a camera assistant led to me then working as a script supervisor on one of his movies, which led me to being an assistant. And then they let me cut some stuff on one of the, on that movie. And then I worked on a bunch of Guy's stuff. Like I did, my dad is a hundred years old was my first project with him. And then my Winnipeg and Cowards Bend the Knee and, and all that stuff. Just like no one really knew how to do it. And that's what makes it so special. Guy had made this movie and, and he didn't really have a script. So he came in and we watched the footage with the editor, who was my other main mentor, John Gertebeck. And he just wrote the script on like a, a pad of paper that I had in the office, you know, and I still have it. Like it's a really unique environment. And Guy's work goes back to, I don't know when he started. I mean, it must have been late 80s or 90s, made a lot of films in Winnipeg. And because everyone who worked on movies either worked on these sort of inbound projects, like whatever TV movies or projects that were shooting there. So you kind of learn how to do it. But then, so you have all these pro crews working on these insane films that are being generated from the very, you know, siloed artistic creative community. And everyone sort of works together. You know, we would all these workshops where we would hand process the film in like paint buckets and shoot on sound stock and then hand process and animate it. Like there was this guy, Mike Marinek, who would teach these workshops and we would make these movies. And the music was being made by all the people who were doing in the great bands there. And you were there with Marcel Zama's people making costumes for Guy. And it was a community. And also the ballet. The ballet is another thing that you have to factor into it because a lot of the actors in Winnipeg were from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, which is a huge ballet. And so, you know, one of my most important jobs was a camera assistant for this guy, Saul Nagler, who was an amazing filmmaker, like experimental filmmaker. I think he's now a professor. And he had, he worked with this like really wild cinematographer. I can't remember his name. He was a really talented guy. That's where I would, where they'd be like, hey, we should cut some stained glass and make like a five by six filter and shoot through stained glass. I'll never forget it. You know, it's just the best years. I was on one of those inbound projects and my first experience in Winnipeg when I was still working as an AD. And it was when Guy was shooting Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. And everybody had talked to me about Guy Madden and I knew a little bit about him. But one night, you know, the crews would play basketball together at RAP. Guy's crew and our crew, we were doing the Avro Arrow. And we would all go to the warehouse where he had built this magical forest inside this old warehouse where they were shooting the movie. And it was like walking into a fairy tale. It was absolutely, to me, it was like, this is some kind of magic that I've never experienced in the film industry to my you know, limited knowledge in Toronto. And I know a lot of people from there, Carmen Arndt, who came from Winnipeg, who was a photographer before becoming a one of the best, you know, line producers that I ever worked with and and John Pays at the Film Center and Greg and like all of those people that came out of the Winnipeg Film Group and the experimental films that were made out there. 
There's a very, very strong, and I think the isolation of Winnipeg, being in the center of the country, sort of not a destination necessarily on everybody's book for culture. Everybody was trying to get to Toronto or Vancouver. And I think it really created this hotbed of people that could experiment and do things and really try different ways of working. And um, I, I think that's a, it's kind of a wonderful place, it, fertile. <laughs> I'll never forget the smell of Twilight of the yeah. Ice Nymphs Forest, but that fecund swamp. Yeah, it's disgusting. Smell. It always is gross. Like I remember one day on a guy film, I was a camera assistant, and there was all these horses that he had brought in. It was like, oh my God. Like there's horses <laughs> shitting in the studio and there's like, a luchador family wrestling and then the, and then like oh there's an <laughs> you look on the call sheet and it's like they, he's they like, swim underwater I'm like how are we going to do the underwater scene you know and then they roll in an aquarium on a cart and they have a guy <laughs> on an apple box pretending to swim and it's like it's just amazing you know <laughs> and it didn't matter like that, that was the Pays thing that was incredible is you know Pays was already gone Pays I'm sure is the guy who let me into the film center when I was 24 and you know he was such a hero of ours and like Crime Wave was a movie that you watched right away. And someone told me like, yeah, you know, Pays, they didn't, they didn't have money for shirts. So they had two shirts in the foreground and then everything was out of focus. They just stapled printer paper around their wrists to be shirt <laughs> cuffs. And there was like this legend that Pays had duct taped a camera to a car because they didn't, like they had an NFB camera and he like drove over it or something. You know, it's... It's like those are the things that make you realize anything's possible and it doesn't, it's not always necessarily safe, but you know, you kind of have to dream big when you have no money because if you're not weird and you're low budget, what are you? You're just cheap, right? So you kind of have to be adventurous. I will say, cut to one month ago, you know, being on a project where there was a very high level of expectation and not enough money to necessarily achieve that expectation. And my roots as an independent filmmaker and as somebody who did a lot of low-budget stuff starting out as a director, and I had a very amazing cinematographer, French cinematographer, uh, Renald Caparo, and I said, I'm going to go down to the Marché aux Pousses on the weekend. Do you want to come with me? And we went and went, bought a bunch of crystals and a bunch of crazy refracted glass and we taped it onto the front of the camera. We did some stuff that the visual effects guys were like, we don't even know how you did this. We can't even make this. We can't even do this. This looks so magical. And I said, oh man, that was so great. Like it just felt like we were doing something really artistic and taking real risks, but saying, hey, listen, this is what we did when we had no money. Yeah. We were creative. Yeah. We had no limitations. It was the limitation of our creativity was the only thing that we would stop us at that point in time. And I think that, you know, having that imprint so early on in that environment, do you think that led you to search out those kind of directors once you started to become an editor? Was that probably part of that process? I think one of the things that happens when you are making films, it's not really that important which part of it you're doing, like what your job is. You're just there doing it. Like the first feature I edited, I was the assistant director and I was only the assistant director because there was already a cinematographer, which is what I thought I wanted to be. And they were like, did you want to be the AD? We need one. I was like, yeah, I'll be the AD. And I 
did that. And I think what I was doing was more like directing because the director was the actor and the, but it didn't matter. It was just myself and this guy, Keith Ides, and we we're 21 and we we're making this movie for five grand that the director and writer and star made at the Red Lobster as a waiter, not like he was hustling people at the Red But And so when I moved on, well, I didn't move on, but like when I just kept traveling through my career, I always just sort of sought out projects where I could be more creatively involved. And I like editing and I continued editing, but I think the directors were always people who were like open. And when I came to Toronto, I went to the film center and my first job was on a Bruce McDonald movie who was a hero of mine. And then I started working with McKellar and those two guys come from the same school, you know, it's like, well, we're just doing this and you're gripping it and you're shooting what you can and doing stuff. And my perspective on editing is that it's obviously you have to have a certain facility with the computer, but really it's like, I try to think about the word in a bigger sense where you're, you're editing the movie and you're trying to figure out what it is that they're trying to say. And so for me, the directors that I wanted to work with were people who were open to being creative in the editing room and, and working with the material in ways that is the best for the film that they shot and not so much like well, you know, we should start in the wide and do this. And and like, not a lot of people do that anymore. But for me, the material always felt more plastic. And I love doing that with a cut, sort of like looking at what you have, looking at what you don't have and figuring out like, how can we do it? I think that you find like-minded people, you work with people who want to do the same thing you do. And that's probably why I haven't done like a, a lot of things that anyone really wants to see, you know? But, but it, it's like, like, I always think, like, my films are for filmmakers and film lovers, and it's not like a lot of people want to see something like Vox Lux every day. But out of the blue, I'll get a call and say, you know, like, that's my favorite. I love that movie. And that, for me, that's, like, really exciting if I can just make art with movies and meet these people and do these things. And so, yeah, I think that I do seek that out. I do seek out the space to sort of get a little experimental or fun with it and be flexible with what my job is on the movie. This brings us to sort of the heart of the collaboration and the alchemy between the director and the editor. I think there's a lot of mystery and misinformation, I would like to say, about what an editor does and what an editor is. And I think a lot of times people think, yes, there's the construction of storytelling, the construction of putting a scene together or finding a scene. But beyond that, I think that to me, it's always been a mystery. I meet a lot of young filmmakers who are like, oh, I, I'm going to edit my own film. And I'm like, I know, and then I'm going to watch it and I can tell you edited it. That's a whole other conversation. But, you know, because they think they can run the software program, that's editing. And I try to explain to them, but I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah. I mean, like I bring everything I've got. And I think that's the point. One of the main things that's different for an editor and a director, let's say you're a feature film director primarily. You get to make a movie like every five years, right? And editors get to make a lot more movies. Yeah, maybe you get to make a movie every 10 years, like, or Tar, 16 years after Little Children. And the reason that I've never pursued like a real direct line in my career is I like bringing everything to it. I like that I have made documentaries and comedies and commercials and action and, and whatever, you know, lots of sad drama stuff, but cinema, like 
the big idea of cinema is that you you're making like a piece of work inside the frame, right? And when you do that, there's no way, and and it's always going to be generated from a script, some kind of document that's going to guide the crew and the actors to record the scenes that, that you are then going to fashion into a movie or a film or a show or whatever. So when you do that, it is never going to go as planned. Like absolutely never will it just be exactly what you thought. And sometimes it is. And there's people who cut their own stuff that are good at it. And there's some people that are bad at it. Like, you know, some of my favorite Van Sant movies, he cut himself and Sean Baker cuts his movies himself. But for them, I believe it becomes a part of their process because they have that, that unique skill to edit their stuff themselves because I think that they collect differently. And so for me, what I bring to the process is a point of view where I look at your screenplay and I look at the footage that we have and I talk to you. I talk to you about what you want it to be. And then we make that movie in the software. And what we bring into it has absolutely nothing to do with a computer. Like it's just a way to organize the pictures. And what I think you bring into it and like, you know, this is, everyone references it, but Murch's books are kind of the Bible for it. You know, like the reason that his stuff is so heady and and whatever is that he's a smarty pants. Like he's looking at poetry and all this stuff. And so his editing is very much about that. I love the expression of the images and I love a very intoxicating pace in my work. And For me, the best way that I've figured out how to describe what I do is I like to make the movie embody the character. I like a movie to be cut in the way that the character is feeling. And oftentimes you are imposing that on on him or her, or it's generating it, you know? And so you kind of have to look at like, like, does the cutting propel this film or does the character propel the cutting? Or does it have anything to do with it at all? Because if it's a very like rigorous like Hanukkah thing where you step back and you're just watching it, then that's really challenging to cut. And people don't think that, you know, like you look at the Oscars every year and it's like how many edits in a film generally means how many nomination chances they have. You know, it's like for me, the hardest thing you can do is a slow paced film and keep it interesting because shots have an expiration date. But often if the milk goes bad, If you wait long enough, you get yogurt and yogurt's delicious. And so for me, it's like (laughs) you can cut right away or you can wait. And if you wait too long, then and then you cut, it's not going to work because it's going to feel like offbeat or off the rhythm of your scene. But then if you keep waiting, then you're going to keep looking at the shot and think, well, I wonder what else I'm supposed to see. And then they're going to look deeper into the image. And that requires a set of eyes that is removed from the creation of it. Because sometimes those long shots or short shots or quick paced scenes aren't going to work because it didn't work out that way. Or the character is supposed to do something for the movie and they're not doing it. Like it's not working. For instance, the movie Enemy was a very interesting experience for me because the book and the script, the female character is like it's about a guy, for those who haven't seen it, it's about a guy who... He's trying to decide between his mistress and his pregnant wife, you know, and he's having like a crisis as a father. Will I stay or go? And like, was it, did I make a mistake? Cause I have this girlfriend. And the girlfriend in the script was like a really warm, like loving 
person, you know, and the wife was sort of like a ball and chain type character. But the casting with like Sarah Gadden being the mother was very warm. And Melina Laurent was sort of meaner to him in the way that she did it. And Denis and I, when we were cutting the movie, we kind of had to realize that the characters were telling us something different than the script was. And we had to cut it different. Like we had to change the way that we were cutting the movie and change the weight of certain sequences because if you didn't cut it different, then it wouldn't make sense why he's trying to leave this great wife that he has for a relationship that's not really working. So we had to rework the movie so he kind of had to get out of his relationship that he didn't want to be in and able to go because he'd gone too far with the other woman. And that's the type of thing that I think editing is. It's about realizing what you have and making that movie with the material that you've got and also looking at the movie in advance and saying, like, what are we doing here? What do we need? Is there anything that we can add? Like just yesterday, I was having a conversation with the director I'm working with and I was like, man, I don't know if we have enough footage for what we were talking about here. And he's like, yeah, but I was thinking we do something different. And maybe we do that. It's like, it's like going to be on TV or something. And then we had this idea, like, why don't we try shooting it off of like three or four different televisions after it's cut? And instead of trying to do it this way, we can cut between all these scenes where we have it on TVs. I don't know if we're going to do it, but (laughs) that's not really editing, but it is, you know? And, And that's the thing that I love doing is just figuring out how we're going to tell the story and helping to do that. Enemy was such a powerful film for me. I didn't realize until I watched it again today. And first of all, it's incredibly prescient about so many things. And I was like struck by, it is a profound example of creating a compelling character through editing and imagery because there's no dialogue. And sound design and music, the score is so astonishing. And it had a really, really profound effect on me as a filmmaker when I saw it for the first time. And it was such a distinct look. Everything about it was so specific. The jump cutting, just like everything not being linear. You felt unsettled as a viewer, but you couldn't turn away the camera staying too long on certain moments where nothing, you felt like nothing was happening. But as a director, I talk about it a lot with young actors and I always tell them that they should watch it because you can't not watch him and Melanie Laurent and Sarah. It's it's so interesting. It's almost forcing you to slow down and observe. Yeah, it's a it's a really bizarre movie in its fabrication. And it was a very, very, very fulfilling and creative experience cutting it because it it was a large part of it we did in editing. And a lot of it were ideas that we had because Denis was in a very unique place because he had just been nominated for an Oscar and he was gonna go do prisoners. And he had money to make Enemy, and it was a good budget, and he had a great cast, and great, and it was all sets mostly. And so it was kind of like this lab, and there was a lot of extra footage. So the cutting of it, we were able to do like another layer of generative filmmaking. We were able to create ideas out of footage that wasn't being used because 
it was this sort of salon where they would just be shooting, you know, and there's, I remember being on set. There's a great moment when it's in the apartment when Jake was watching the movie on his laptop. I was on set for some reason and we were talking and and someone just was like, and I realized they were rolling. And there was this sort of communication between Jake and Denis and Nico, the DP, who were just, it was just like, they were always working. There was never a moment when they weren't working. And if there was something they found, they would shoot it. And that was sort of the edit too. And I was quite young and didn't have anything else that I cared about. And so, you know, I would go home and work at night and I would come to the office the next day and I did this, you know, and there was a different opening for the movie. And Denny was like, I think we need a different opening. Can you come up with something? You know, and it was like he would issue these challenges because the guy, we don't need to talk about how good he is, you know. (laughs) But the thing that's really cool about him is he never needed to have the idea. Sometimes challenging you for the, because he had ideas, but he would often be like, see what you can come up with, you know. And there was some amazing creative juice that came from that. Like the opening of the movie is hair and makeup tests, you know, and that's what we used. Cause I just, I had them and they were amazing. And I remember we were at dinner somewhere and we're like, Oh, we should get a voicemail. Like there's like, I was thinking about voicemails, you know? And so we got Isabella Rosalina to like call and record a voicemail. And then you have this new scene that sort of was only generated by the movie editing and we we're like, you know, it'd be great to fill out that feeling is the idea of like not picking up your mom's phone call because there's something wrong and you can't face her. And we did it. And it was like, it's like your palate is just expanded when you have a creative partner like that. Now that was the rarest of experiences. And I think we've touched on this, but I, you know, I think that like directors and writers, editors sometimes I'm sure get pigeonholed into genres mm-hmm. or styles, et cetera. And once again, I think this goes to the heart of not understanding that at the end of the day, we may have an affinity for certain genres or because that's our voice and you know we're drawn to certain types of storytelling. But I think that at, at, at the very end of it all, we're just all storytellers. We're just trying to create some kind of truth. I think that what I'm getting at is like, I think you have an unusual uh, way of explaining what you call your agnostic style. And I think we've talked a little bit about it in the creative process, but maybe you can just say how you approach a movie. Like, what do you, when you, when you're involved in a project, what is that initial spark and how do you then, you know, move forward in the project? That's a good question. I mean, I think the creative juice comes from movies themselves. And so I often try to think about what we're doing. I try to think about other movies and then I watch a lot, a lot. Like I like to do references and they're not always going to match, but like for enemy, I really was watching a lot of Antonioni because I liked the way that he dealt with space and time. So that was something that I wanted to apply because I felt, okay, what is in history of cinema what are we edging towards here? And, and I felt something drawing me towards Antonioni and there's nothing about enemy that is going to remind you of Antonioni, but what it does is it allows me to sort of pick up on something in the film to play with. And because it was not a real story, like because it wasn't set in reality, 
I needed something to loosen me up and give me a, an infrastructure to work in. And so then I came up with this idea because I think Antonioni is like a lot of representation. I was like, okay, I'm going to come up with a story for the movie and I'm going to do that. And the style sort of came from that and, and we were looking at music. What is the music of this movie? Like not necessarily the score, but what is it? And there's a lot of groaning, you know, and Denis and I had these pieces like um, a weird live John Zorn concert and some Colin Stetson saxophone from like the early albums that he was making. And, and these were things that were fueling us. And that's one way that I look at it as like picking a reference, not so much for like, let's do this. It's more, what's the framework here? It's the cinematic framework. What's the language? And then the other thing is there's no not corny way to say this, but you just have to, for me, I have to let the movie speak to me and play with it. You know, I am lucky that not a lot of directors that I work with want to see like a first, like they don't want scenes delivered that day. They don't want to see like a, a rough assembly and then edit that. They want to work with, I do, most of the directors I work with, we build it from scratch together. So my assembly time is totally experimental. And so when I'm assembling, I'm doing a lot of sound design. I'm listening to a lot of music. I'm cutting scenes. I'm looking at how scenes are going together. And that starts to sort of tell me how this movie, like how flexible it is and how pliable the material is. And with Enemy, I sourced inspiration from the camera movement. And the camera rig that they had that worked so well was a handheld rig hung upside down on a jib on a dolly. So they could drive around and move the camera and pick it up. And so I was like, okay, well, what's the editing version of that? You know, like, let me have that as an inspiration. And the editing version of that is a sort of gooey, you know, like time's not real. The reality of this movie, some sort of like bendy. And so I try to cut it that way. And that's how I started layering all the dialogue all over each other and doing scenes. Like there was certain, there was a dream sequence where he has like this dream of the hotel that was very central. And one day I just showed Denis, instead of playing the scene where they're like, hi, would you like your hotel room? Order? I was like, I got this really insane music and just cut it silently. And I was like, how does a dream feel? Like a dream feels wrong. It doesn't feel like a scene. It feels wrong. And so, you know, that became the way to do it. And in other movies, like there's this film I did that I'm really proud of called James White. And that was one where the character dictated the style. The character was a sort of interior looking at the ground in front of him and just trying to get by day by day. So the days had to feel like really confusing. You just had to like wake up sometimes and you're just going. And then long stretches will pass or a scene when you have to be present because the character is never present. We did this long take where we just, we were supposed to shoot. He was talking about how he's going to be a father and move to Paris and, and his mom's going to die of cancer. And we were going to shoot Paris. And then when we were cutting it, one of my jobs as the editor is to remember what it's like to see the footage for the first time. Cause I'm the only one who ever gets to do that. And I cried really hard when I was watching the dailies because it was such a moving performance and it led to us deciding to not cut into it and to not cover it because we decided that it was worth it. And it was because it was an honest moment in a character's life who's always moving and couldn't get away from the reality. But then when the reality is in front of him, he has to stop. 
And so that was the cutting style of that, like pop, 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 and then pause and hold it real long because you know it's real, you know? And then you end up with something like White Noise, which is every genre in one. You got to see it, right? Yeah, I watched it today. That's a movie that's about movies. It's like a movie about people acting like they're in a movie. And so we got to do noir because he is acting like he's in a noir. And it never says it explicitly, but that's like all of them are like making decisions based on how people would act in a fiction. It's not real. You know, you don't just like do these things. And so we got to do like 80s adventure Spielberg thing. We got to do color 80s color noir. Like I watched Thief a bunch and we would draw frames in pre-production. We did a lot of storyboarding. Shots from Thief. There's shots from Close Encounters. There's shots from E.T. There's... But then there's also just like people talking in a room and that is just as exciting because you can do drama, you can do adventure, you can do like Jurassic Park with my model for the creek sequence, you know, and there's nothing about Jurassic Park, but I wanted it to feel that way. And then it's also the vacation movies with like, why don't we run a whole scene over a wide that they probably would have done in voiceover back then, but let's do it, you know? And, and so what you're doing is you're drawing on history to invoke a feeling that allows you to feel a certain way. So I think I just try to taste the fruit and, and, and figure out what I'm going to make with those ingredients. It feels like the rhythm and cadence of the film finds you in a kind of organic way, which I think is always really beautiful and authentic. You said something in an interview which I thought was really powerful, and I want to just share it because I think to all the directors listening out here, this is probably the mystery and the magic. And um, I got to work with John in Winnipeg on a project last year. He cut a film for me. And it was such a beautiful experience because I was like, well, why don't we try this? And he was like, okay. And we had this really, it was a very you know, specific TV project, but we took a lot of risks and we did a lot of really creative things. And it was a real joyful experience for me. So I can understand him being a mentor of yours and having such a big influence on you. He was, he was really great. The man is a genius. Yeah. That's a guy who came from performance art. He didn't understand why people didn't want to make things into art. And that was something that I took from him. He was like, there was no rules with him. Everything was material for the thing. And what, and I just, you know, I have not, I have unlimited respect and admiration, adoration for that guy. Well, this is what you said. And it was partly about John Gerdebecki. Gerdebeck, yeah, right? That's his, yeah. You said about him, he showed me to treat footage like raw material and to be unafraid of making something new or unintended if it feels good for the film. I feel you can always go through the footage and cut the scene as it was intended, but you never get a chance to see it for the first time again. So when I watch dailies, I try to just take them in and then assemble the scene based on whatever I saw that made me feel the most. That could be a great camera move or a specific moment of performance. If the actor did something incredible in a particular setup late in the scene, I'm going to try to build the scene towards that. So I'll choose shots based on some sensible progression towards that moment. Whatever it is that is most striking, 
I focus on that and work backwards. And I love that for so many reasons, because I think that that is something that we forget about. We forget that in the work that we do, hopefully, there is a moment where the intention that you had or some sub-intention that you don't even know yet um, reveals itself Mm -hmm. as a director, whether it's through performance or through a camera movement or I love relationships with cinematographers that I have where I can say, I need something that makes me feel lonely. Mm-hmm. I need the lonely shot. And they're like, okay. And they know what I'm talking about because we have a language. They know what I'm talking about and how I want the camera to be something also that makes the audience feel something yeah. where the camera is. And I think that that is a really profound statement. And I hope that every director that's listening and editors that are listening and everybody else takes that away from that. I mean, I don't know. I like, that's great. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it is great. it's what you do, right? Like the first time I worked on a movie with dailies was a TV movie for that guy, Gary Yates that I mentioned. And an editor from London took me on. I didn't have any experience. I lied to get the job and I said, I knew how to use Avid and I didn't. And, you know, I just figured it out. And I mean, that was all Buffalo gals who were just like the supporters of mine that I just, you know, my career doesn't exist without Phyllis and Liz because they, they just supported me. You know, they were the ones that, that said, yeah, he could probably do it, you know? And that movie was, I don't know how, I don't know what year it would have been like 2003. We were getting our dailies on beta SP. And the way that you use to digitize your dailies is by recording them from a tape deck into your computer, right? And so I would sit there with the editor and we would watch the dailies come in. And I try as best I can to replicate that every time I make a film because there is something about... Set's terrible. It's so exhausting. It's like you're like eating an old cheese sandwich and your feet hurt and like it's hot and everything is a problem. And sometimes you can lose sight of how great it is, what you're getting. Or you can circle a take and be like, that's the best take because it was what you were working on. And then you do another one and it's like, ah, let's move on. That's not as good anymore. Or you missed the first one. But so for me, it's like (laughs) the symbolism of removing whatever happened between each take. It's only when the camera was rolling and watching that in a string, you see the creative and intellectual progression of the shoot day. And of the movie. And so when you sit there every day and watch an hour or two of whatever the footage, like however much footage they got, you can see your director working. You can see their brain working and you can see the actors working and you can see, I think what I'm thinking about a certain scene when I said that thing, because it wasn't working for a while and then it starts working and then you have to do it again and again and again and again. But you may have not done it on the other side of the scene because you didn't get it yet, you know? And then you have to be really creative about how to incorporate that. And so for me, it's about capturing the magic. You know, it's about like tying your rope around the thing that is the best in the scene and the best thing in the movie and making sure that you use all the material to support it to its maximum potential. And sometimes you can get caught up on things that seem integral and and basic to the film. Like, like some of the, the structure of this movie is this. 
but it might not actually be because it may have not worked as good as the other thing. Like it's usually in the script. It's usually there in the script. But sometimes you have to look a little deeper for how to get the script onto the screen because it might take a little bit of invention. Let's talk about your process and when you're working on a project. I know that you love to come on, obviously, at the very beginning. This was something I learned on my very first film. I had some really wonderful mentors. They said to me, bring your editor on long before you go to camera. Have deep conversations with them. They can help guide you and help the creative process. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, I just watched The Nest, which I have to say was like watching a slow moving emotional train wreck, but I could not take my eyes off the screen either. I was like, it's a beautiful movie. Thanks. I love that movie. On so many levels, on so many levels. And I would have probably never found it had I not been doing this interview with you today. And now I'm going to recommend it to everybody because it's really a work of art. Um, Please tell the director, because I know you're working with him again. Please tell him how much of a work of art I thought it was. Um, And very accessible. It was way more compelling dramatically. Not just, I don't want to say entertaining, because that's not the word. But you, you wanted to keep watching, even though I was such a ball of, like, anxiety for the majority of it. Thanks. And I loved the ending. Yeah, I love it too. It was a great ending. Maybe you could just talk about your process with him and how that came to be and, you know, how were you involved, et cetera, throughout that journey to the screen? Sean's a friend of mine, Sean Durkin. I had worked with them. He produced James White. I was a really big fan of Martha Morsi May Marlene. Great film. The composers from Martha, Martha, May, and Marlene were the composers for Enemy. Like, it's all a very tight-knit thing. And I was really lucky that I got to go work with these guys who were sort of like my peer heroes, you know? So when we were making The Nest, we knew each other already. And I read a couple drafts. And for me, it's like the reason why I aspire to keep my relationships and keep working with directors is I think there is something invaluable in a continued friendship and professional relationship, because not only do you know how to remind them of what they started out trying to achieve, but you also know where it's coming from and and how they're going to make it. And the TV thing is something I was talking about for this movie with Sean and the comfort that you have with a friend, you know, editing is so intimate, you know, it's like you see more of them than you see of your family. You have to trust each other, which is why I always tell people like, don't try to work with people who aren't your people. Like, Whatever you're doing is only going to be good if you're meant to be there. And I mean that in, a, in an emotional way, if, you, if it's your thing. And, and The Nest for me, you know, it was Sean's very personal story. I first heard about the movie when we were cutting James White and I went to London to go see him. And he was writing a horror movie about a film director who lived in England. And that turned into The Nest. Or maybe those were two films that turned that script because we were going to make this movie about Janis Joplin and it ended up not happening. And they greenlit the nest really quickly and we were just doing it. And I knew what Sean had and he changed the script. And so the I think what's most special about my being a part of it early on is I knew it originally was a horror movie. And that's why it feels the way it does because we took out the horror part of the movie, but we 
fashioned it after a horror movie because the thing is them. And so that's why there's all those shots and the sound design is all about something's watching you and it was very distant or tight and there was the characters were accessed in a way that is abnormal for a traditional movie. And so for me, you know, like there's the basic stuff of reading the script and talking about cutting or adding scenes, which is like, you know, something you learn. I think I've gotten better at it. I was really never good at it before. And with experience, you figure out what to say and and how to gesture towards what you think without condemning things or it's got to be a positive process. I mean, I believe in everything being very positive because it's such a sensitive medium. Like to stand up in front of a crew and say, this is what I think, you have to be putting on a show because no one's that confident. And so for me, I'm like, my position as editor is to be absolutely supportive because you see them at their most raw, right? And so I really want to be your family member. You know, like I want to be, and, and so when I'm reading the script, I try to look at it and talk about it and say, what are you trying to do here? What do you think about this? Do you think maybe we need this? Like there was a couple things that we added, you know, in white noise that I came up with because I had read the book and the script and I hadn't spent a year writing the script. And so I was talking all about the book and with the nest, the drafts changed quite a bit from the time I first read it until later. So for me, it was just about talking about it with Sean, you know, talking about what we were doing, having a place for him to talk about how he's going to shoot it. There was stuff that we came up with that he shot in a certain way because of conversations, not ideas that I had, but conversations that I had. Like just yesterday, we were talking about this movie and I didn't necessarily know what I was thinking, but I, we were talking about the editorial style because we're shooting right now. We have a week left and it's like a Greek tragedy sort of. And so what we were talking about was how it's going to cut. And I was talking about the way I've been playing with some scenes. I was like, hey, I tried this and it was really cool. Like I layered I, I layered this scene on top of that scene. Someone's home. And, um, and he was like, yes, 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 that's great. That's what I was thinking too. And so we had this idea. I was like, okay, and it's about consequences. The editorial style is about consequences. So scenes have to be always tumbling forward and... You have to layer it all on. You have to feel that the reason this happened is because of this. And so that is sort of going to be this a thing where I think it's like, I think of it as a triangle, right? It's like you have everything and it's getting compressed and compressed and compressed. I'm doing a very, for the audio version, I'm doing a very complicated triangle with my arms. <laughs> because when it's about consequences, you want to keep everything in the movie, right? And so that's actually making me think about music. It's making me think about having a really strong thematic element to the thing because with music a lot of times you're like oh yeah you have like kevin's theme and samantha's theme and then you have the family and whatever or you have one theme and if you repeat the same theme over and over with different iterative qualities you're always going to be thinking about the previous time you heard it you know and so it helps me to start looking at how we're going to temp it what are we going to do are we going to use material from before or later? And so it's like script editing, but also just that blue sky creative space that I don't think can be as rich or fervent if you are just coming in and looking at the footage. Because 
you only have the footage as source material. You don't have the conversations and the experience and the shoot and everything. So for me, it's really about just infusing myself with the idea, but removing myself from the pain and pleasure of production. Because sometimes production can also be intoxicating. You can be like, I had so much fun doing that scene. We have to use it, you know? With White Noise, I like, there's a scene I spent a whole night, second unit, shooting and we cut it in like four minutes because I'm like it's, it's too much for the sequence and it's like a whole night of shooting a whole night of my life on the road I throw out in one minute and you kind of have to be able to do that but also you have to be able to say remember this was the idea remember this is what we first talked about let's go to Noah because that's probably the film that's coming out now right it's just coming out mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. let's talk about the white noise experience, you, once again, and I think this is really intrinsic to the journey that you've been on, which is creating these friendships with directors, which I 100% believe in. I've always said to young filmmakers, find an editor that you love, who challenges you and has, you know, great creativity, and then please blow smoke up their ass for the rest of your career. That's what you should do with your creative partners because they remind you of when you lose your way of why, you know, what you have to say and and how you have a unique way of saying it. And they find and elevate your work. I mean, that's just what they do. Great creative partners do. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the White Noise Project and how that all came to be in working with Noah. Because I know that you guys also shot this on film. Yeah, I mean, I got really lucky, you know, my good friend, Jen, I also believe in having colleagues, you know, like my editor community is so strong. And I think you'd agree, like having director friends where you can talk about how it is to do what you're doing. It's important to me to learn from my peers. And Jen is someone that I've known for a while. We went to go see Operation Avalanche, the Toronto movie, Matt Johnson's movie. We went to go see it together at Sundance and we didn't really know each other that well. And we just didn't. We ended up sitting next to each other because I had a ticket and we hung out. And Jen had cut for some friends, and and but we've just always kept in touch. We really liked each other, and we were cutting in the same buildings a few times, you know. And it's someone that I admire. And Jen was busy on another project; she couldn't do his thing anymore, and so it came to me. I know he met other editors too, but you know, I kind of like that New York satirical literature and and he and I really hit it off when we talked, I guess. I mean, I didn't know at the time. <laughs> Three job interviews and I, well, I hope I got it. But yeah, I mean, I, that one, it was a long relationship. You know, we, we met, he hired me at the end of 2020 and we just finished the movie two weeks ago, you know. So we talked about the script a bunch. We talked about the book a bunch. Talked about wine a bunch, you know, like it's just, it's just about getting to know each other. And, and like, I'm also a big fan of shooting on film. I'm really lucky that a lot of movies I get to do on film and I love shooting film myself, like stills and stuff. So we talked a lot about the aesthetics and we talked a lot about movies and we always text about movies and music. And, you know, that's the thing where like the score was influenced by this stuff I was listening to. And I texted it to him and I was like, what do you think about like this for that kind of thing? And he's like, great. You know, and then I cut the storyboards to that. And then it was our temp music. And he was like feeling Tangerine Dream a little bit for the movie. And and it was Harold Budd, the music that I was listening to. And so then, you know, we then we when we started working with Elfman, he made 
the music based on Tangerine Dream meets this Aaron Copeland stuff that I'd cut that car crash montage to. And that's like no one's idea, you know? And like, I think that's the best way that you can, when you look at a movie and you don't know whose idea it was, that's the best thing. You know, taking credit for things is kind of like, it's nice to know that you had a hand in creating something. But what I really love is looking at something and knowing that it was genuinely like a community concept. And um, that's something I learned from Don and Bruce, you know? So anyways, the question is like with Noah, I, you know, we worked a bunch. We did this amazing thing that I have never done before where the first time I met him in person was a couple, like maybe a month before we all moved to Cleveland to shoot the movie. All the department heads got together for a week in New York and we had a boardroom slash abandoned yoga studio. And we sat around and we did a page by page talk through and everyone talked about every idea that they had for the scene. There was a TV so we could show references. There was a storyboard artist drawing stuff for us. And it was just this like creative incubator where every idea that anyone had about color, costume, editing came out. Right. There was like someone taking notes and it was the most creative moment I've had in a movie because you don't get to talk to the designer and the costume designer and the, and the cinematographer about their ideas and about how we could cut it and what we could use and pulling clips and stuff. And so that was like a really great part of it. And I think it just built from there. I was on set shooting with him. He likes to have an editor on the set sometimes. And so I spent time on set. Uh, Cinematographer is a good friend of mine. So that was a really fun thing, you know? And so it was just a really collaborative, creative experience. And Noah, Noah shoots to cut, you know, his ideas about how he's going to construct his shots have a lot to do with how he's going to cut them. And so we would talk about the shot list in the morning and after work, we would talk about the footage that I seen that day. And, you know, uh, we just were talking today and I just realized, you know, we were talking about his next script and it's the type of, I mean, he's more inclusive than a lot of directors because he, he, that's how he works. He likes to really draw on, on every aspect of it to get his ideas for writing and shooting. But um, we never really talked about cutting, you know, it was like, we just kind of cut together and he's like, what if it was like this? And what if we did that? And, and he would just sit with me all day and I would just work. And sometimes we wouldn't talk about what I was doing. And sometimes he would tell me what to do and he would want to see it. He's like, can I see it this way? And we had a luxurious schedule, you know, we cut for a long time. So we got to know each other real well. And I don't know, it was just like a hard, long, great experience with a guy who really wants to cut his movie. And we made a lot of tough choices, you know, we cut some really great material because it wasn't working for all the things that we've talked about. It was just not right for the movie. And so we, you know, you have to trust each other. And I think that's the main thing in the cutting room is to just trust each other completely and be willing to say something and be ready to be told that you're wrong or that they don't like your idea and and not take that personally. I think it took me about 10, 15 years to learn how to be wrong without feeling, but I already did it that way. Like, oh, here, all right, your movie, bro. Like it's, you know, <laughs> that's not helpful and it has nothing to do with you, you know? It has nothing to do, you go back to that, it has nothing to do with whose idea wins. Best idea wins. And it's not a win. Yeah. The movie is the thing that has to win, you know? So it doesn't really matter who, who does what or how it happens as long as you get there, you know? I think what he did at the very beginning, which is really wonderful to hear, and I feel very envious of that, um, feels very much like what they used to do, like 
Sidney Lumet used to do, or like, you know, the directors in the seventies, when you had people come in early and you had those conversations and you dug in deep and everybody contributed. And also it's team building. You're laying a foundation for a creative process that can only go upwards, right? That can only be built upon, which I think is a really important factor when, you know, team building is as an important part, like the choices that you make of your creative partners and your contributors and your collaborators is as important as the content because it can have a complete, you know, the outcome can be devastating if you pick the wrong people or miraculous and more than you ever imagined if you pick the right people. So I think that those are really important things for people to hear. I mean, it's so hard to talk about editing. (laughs) You know, it's like. (laughs) Well, it's like magic. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, you do it and it's total experimentation, but you, you're supposed to think that it's like really intentional as I have done, like I, you know, you don't do a lot of interviews about this. And then if you have something that's kind of bigger, people want to hear about it. And, And so for me, it's like, it's not precise. The great thing about editing is that you can delete, try again, do it all over again, throw it out, take one thing from the other. It's like, so for me, it's like, I know a lot of people pride themselves in, you know, there's a different way to do my job. Like there's a a more serious way, but it's not me, you know? And I think that's the most important thing is to just like, do you like whoever you are. And I'm not like a serious guy and I'm, and I, and I really love movies and I love playing around and, and I like computers, you know, I like sound. And so I work a lot on sound design and it's not good. It's not, it's not like good enough to be done, but I like to make a really like intense, best as I can stab at a rough track that's going to inform how the movie feels because my movies all are about sound. You know, I love what a sound design can do for a film. And I would love to try it one day because that would be another experiment for me. I would love to do nothing. I would love to do like just the dialogue track and let someone build it up. But that's like very hard to do because I'm, I think part of my storytelling skill set is thinking about sound because I have a passion for it. And I think that for me, as I slip into inspirational speaker territory here, it's really about finding what you're best at sharing. Like what is your best stuff that you can share and try to build that up. Try to be like effective at the things that you're most capable of being effective at. Because I used to always really want to get like a this, like a bigger movie or this kind of movie or like, I want to do Batman. I want to do whatever. But it's like, that hasn't come to me yet. And so I just try to follow the stuff that people seem to want me to do because I know that I'm going to be able to do it. If they want me to do it, I'm going to do a better job. And I've never been like, I always call it like the open market. Like I've just never done that. I've always just worked with people that I know or could know by a degree or two. And that's because I'm a personal person. You know, I'm an insecure, sensitive guy, and I don't really want to go out there and meet someone who I'm going to have a fraught relationship with, and they're going to be thinking about firing or, you know, whatever. Like, I I want to have fun at work, and I want to be able to do something that I, that I can feel is me. And so when I am trying to choose a project, I often weigh it heavily on a personal relationship because... I know I'll be able to do better work. And, and one of the big things that I walk away from a movie with is like, if you feel you didn't do it perfectly, it eats at me because 
someone else maybe could have done it better, you know? And that's like, that kills me to think that like, ah, if, if someone else had cut that movie, it may have been quote unquote better. I don't know that I have any of those, but I think about it. I mean, I don't know what you even asked me, but that's how I feel about this is the most important thing is to find the person who can best access your skill set. Well, I think that chemistry and alchemy is terribly underestimated, I would probably have to say, because people are like, well, you know, we've got to get this big editor and we've got to get this person or you're a first time director. So we have to get somebody who's like above here. And and I said, no, you need you need somebody who who you can spend because I love to be in the edit suite, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably where directors learn the most. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most important experiences that you can have is to experiment while you're in there, to try things, to let somebody else try things, to listen to the conversations that are happening, and to recognize when you've made mistakes and say, oh, okay, that's very good. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'll make a new mistake, of course, mm-hmm. but I won't make, I won't make that one again. Or, wow, really, that worked. And I didn't know if it was going to. I took a risk on it. I think those are really powerful lessons to have as a director. And you never stop learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always say that (laughs) editors are kind of like the knitters. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. You have all of these balls of yarn that are up in the air and bouncing around. Ultimately, they're the, the people that can sort of take all of those elements and find some way to make a horrifying sweater or a comforting skirt. Yeah. Is it, is it Argyle or is it stripes? You know, it's like there's different ways to do it. And yeah, but that is about your personal relationship, right? Because like I was saying to Noah, we did this interview together today for white noise. And most of the things we talked about were what we watched the night before. Like, you know, we'll be sitting there drinking coffee and, I, and I'll be like, watch anything. You know, he's like, yeah, I watched half of this and, and I'd watch it or I'd be like, I was thinking about this, you know, and that's what gets your brain going, right? It's like you have to keep watching movies because I, I don't know. I just feel that it's really important to have them in you and you never know what crazy movie is going to inspire an idea. So you kind of just have to remain curious. That's what I do. I just try to remain curious about what they think and ask the questions and see what it does to me. I want to thank you so much for sharing in such an open way. I think that's really important. And for having a different way of going on this journey and for sharing that. And I think that's very empowering for people to hear. I always say, go where you're wanted. Totally. That's my whole life. Yeah. I think that's just a really something that people forget about, you know, like they're thinking I should do this or I should be on this or I should do this. And I said, the step in front of you is the one that you need to be engaged with. Yeah. And for reasons unknown, it will lead you to the next adventure. And you have no idea. Sometimes when you're in the thick of it and it seems impossible and difficult, just know that there's a reason that you're in the thick of it. So I want to thank you for being such a lovely human being. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Like, for me, it's like, that's the only thing, you know, if you try, I mean, I used to try to do it, but you're right. Go where you wanted, because then you're going to have a better experience and you can do better work. That's what we do. You've got to do good work. doesn't matter what it is. Like, you can't look down on one thing because you think it's not what you should be doing. You never know. You never know what's going to be moon, moonlight or, you know, everything everywhere all at once or any of these movies that are just like, 
on fire out there. It's because people made them with a lot of passion and that's all you can do. Congratulations on all the success. And uh, I look forward to the rest of the world seeing White Noise. And please go back and look at all the other movies too, because they're amazing. And I will see you in person. And uh, congratulations on the family. Oh, thank you so much. This podcast was produced by Katie Jensen and Michal Stein at Vocal Fry Studios. Our video producer is Mike Shirell. Our executive producer is Anne Marie Stewart. And special thanks to Aviva Cohen and Laura DiGirolamo at DGC Ontario. And I'm your host, Annie Bradley. We'll see you next time on Wider Lens. We would like to acknowledge that we are situated in Tuckeronto and are grateful to be working on this land. We acknowledge the land that we are recording this podcast on today is the colonized territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Tuckeronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. These treaties and other agreements, including the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, are agreements to peaceably share and care for the land and its resources. Other Indigenous nations, Europeans and newcomers, were invited into this covenant in the spirit of respect, peace and friendship. We acknowledge and share our gratitude to the First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples of Canada, caregivers of the land and keepers of its stories for thousands of years. 